This is Bonjour Chai, the Some of My Best Friends Are Jewish edition. I'm Avi Fongel in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk all things multiculturalism with Professor David Weinfeld. Do Jews celebrate Thanksgiving? Are Jews settlers? What can we learn from the remarkable friendship of two individuals in the early 20th century? Phoebe, how's it going? All right, Afi. How are you? Uh, I'm good. It's uh, Sukkot. It's been, uh, you know, we're not supposed to talk about the weather, but like it's been unusually good weather. And on Sukkot, that's often a great thing because we're eating outdoors and are, you know, having all our meals in the sukkah. Some people I know even sleep in the sukkah, even in Montreal, um, but not me. But it's been wonderful and it's been a great holiday so far and a good antidote to the end of the, uh, the, the rest of the holiday season that we've been going through. Have you ever slept in a sukkah? I have, yes. Uh, way back in yonder day when I was young and rugged and had something to prove, I would like sleep in the sukkah outside in the cold Montreal climate. Uh, but I'd like, yes, this is what I do. And there was no heaters. It was just a sleeping bag. And uh, there were no raccoons um, or any other critters overnight. But uh, that was it. Um, Phoebe, why don't you introduce our guest? I'm, I'm curious what his sukkah experiences are in Montreal. But Yes, uh, I, I was, I was about to ask. And then I realized we hadn't done the introduction yet. David Weinfeld. Professor, where are you a professor currently? Ex- explain your role in the world. I am a professor at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey. Where is Glassboro, New Jersey? It's, it's about 30, 35 minutes from Philadelphia, which is where I live. Oh, nice. Nice. We have you on as a Canadian representative of Canada. Um, so you are from Montreal, correct? I am. And um, also is the author of An American Friendship, which we will discuss. We will discuss. Um, But I first wanted to ask you, um, well, first of all, have you ever slept in a sukkah? I have never slept in a sukkah, but I did have a very Canadian sukkah growing up. Uh, uh, One year, my father decided that we should all build a sukkah. So we started doing it. And uh, what we did to hold up the schach, the leaves, and branches on the roof of the sukkah is we lay um, skis and hockey sticks <laughs> perpendicular to each other and then put the branches on top of those. So uh, we're always very proud of our very Canadian sukkah. That, that's incredible. Okay, so that, that kind of, um, also, it's incredible, but also brings us to our first question for you, which is whether you will, are going to be celebrating Canadian Thanksgiving this year. Um, so funnily enough, I've, I've written about this in the CJN in the past, when back in the day I had a column. Uh, and I had never, ever celebrated Canadian Thanksgiving growing up. Uh, and the first time I celebrated it, I was 19 years old. I was in college at, uh, at Harvard, and I was with the Harvard Canadian Club. And they had a Canadian Thanksgiving. So my first Canadian Thanksgiving was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, my understanding is that Canadian Jews did not celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving, so, and I was quite yeah. proud of this, in fact. This is fascinating to me. I had no idea. Um, so I became Canadian a couple weeks ago now, um, mm-hmm. but have been living here since 2015. And I just assumed once you're Canadian, you just switch when you do Thanksgiving. But I guess because I grew up definitely with Thanksgiving a big deal um, in my American Jewish household, I had ne- it, it had never occurred to me that Thanksgiving would be something like, well, even like Christmas or Halloween or something where Jews would may- maybe do it, but probably not or something like that. So, um, so why is that? Why would Canadian Jews not 
go in so much for Thanksgiving, do you think? So my understanding is it's not just Canadian Jews. It's that, in fact, the only people that really celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving are what I would call white Anglo Christians, mm-hmm. um, Protestant or Catholic. Um, that that's my understanding. I, I've, I haven't studied this, <laughs> but I do think that um, most people who do not fall under that categorization didn't grow up with much, if any, Canadian Thanksgiving celebration. And I think, in part, it's because uh, I don't want to say that Canadians are less patriotic than Americans, though maybe that's true, but Canadian uh, cultural holidays or whatever you want to call them really uh, don't uh, carry as much weight as their American counterparts. Mm -hmm. American Thanksgiving, in my understanding, everybody celebrates it and they put their spin on it. If you're Italian, you do some Italian food. If you're Jewish, you have a kosher turkey, uh, whatever the case may be. But um, it's Canadian Thanksgiving for my family and, and most people I know well, it's interesting. I just wanted to just interject that I think at supermarkets and so forth seem to now give, at least in Toronto, give the impression that everybody's doing this. But when I actually talk to people, it's like like there's a farmer's market in my neighborhood that runs on Mondays and it's it's happening on Thanksgiving. There's no sort of everything closing sort of mood. Avi, do you celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving? Uh, I, I don't, although my first Canadian Thanksgiving and my first American Thanksgiving giving happened actually in Boston. Um, just over the Charles River. And it was, I moved uh, in my early 20s to Boston to teach uh, at a high school there. And I never thought about, I mean, I was aware of Canadian Thanksgiving. I remember a friend of mine's father, who was a rabbi, was really proud and always said that it was important to celebrate Thanksgiving because as Jews, we like to give thanks and there's nothing wrong with celebrating Thanksgiving. But he was the anomaly. Um, So I never really thought about it. And um, I remember the person that I was going out with at the time um, insisted that I go to the Milk Street Cafe and buy a turkey sandwich on Canadian Thanksgiving with cranberry like dressing so that like I had some sort of Canadian experience Uh, and I was like okay I sort of threw it away I barely even thought about it and then um, weeks later all of a sudden uh, I I am told that I'm the worst person in the world because it's Wednesday before Thanksgiving, right? Era of Thanksgiving. And I don't have any Thanksgiving plans. And I wasn't even thinking about it. It was just a day off of school. And everybody was like, what? You have to go to Thanksgiving. Everybody does Thanksgiving. And it really, I, I, spoiler alert, I did go to Thanksgiving. It was a wonderful experience um, with Canadians that I knew that were there. Um, and I just remember seeing it as an amazing lens on the two different cultures about how uh, Canadians didn't feel the need to be part of these, as you say, secular holidays, right? It didn't make you more Canadian to celebrate Thanksgiving. And therefore, there wasn't a need to do it where there's this big push. And I guess it's the assimilationist push versus the, you know, diversity approach, um, the Canadian, the multicultural approach that Canadian might, Canadians might have. I'm sure this we will hear that, all like, about which terms to use. Thanksgiving <laughs> is this thing that everybody does. It's the thing that makes you American. Um, it's because it's part of the founding of America, the American tradition and the story. And uh, we can get into the problematics of that another time. But this, that y- if you're not doing this, you are not American. And Jews, as a result, adopted it and said, no, we are American. We are going to do this. I My favorite was when the first night of Hanukkah turned out on Thanksgiving and everybody did Thanksgiving, right? And it, it was such a big deal. And Canadians, I think, felt confident enough in their Canadianness. ness um, 
to just, you know, be part of uh, the culture and to sing O Canada when appropriate and to put a Canadian flag in our sanctuaries and in the synagogues. Um, But needing to go one step further and celebrate Thanksgiving wasn't necessary in that way. Um, Does that resonate at all? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, one thing I love about Canada, written about this uh, before as well, is that it um, it doesn't have an overbearing secular culture, secular culture. Well, it does. It's culture. hockey, and Jews it's have hockey. adopted that. Sure. Well, well, that's, that. yeah, it's, it's hockey and, and the CBC and whatnot, but right, it's not, it doesn't have that, so it, it frees ethnicities to express themselves and do their own thing and not have to care about this larger thing. And, and I've always liked that about Canada. So I, I always thought of Thanksgiving in the States as being a way for Jews to kind of do Christmas without doing Christmas. Also, it was like a kind of you get to have the holiday that everybody's having at least once. You don't do both of them, but you do one of them. And for me, it always felt like a kind of guilt free equivalent but without, obviously, it's not the same, the same thing. But, um, yeah, maybe. but yeah, so I wanted to talk though, just like about since it is, you know, Canadian thing, I know, and I've also been told that you're not supposed to call it Canadian Thanksgiving when you're in Canada. <laughs> um, and I'm going to try now that I'm Canadian to remember that. Apart from in this conversation. It's like, we're, it's like we're not supposed to say the Old Testament, just the right. Bible. Right? The Hebrew Bible, yeah. exactly. the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, yeah. I pay for coffee. Here are my Canadian dollars that I'm going to exchange. Um, <laughs> yeah. So something that I've noticed for a long time, but feel like I'm obliged to discuss it now because it came up also just um, during my citizenship oath um, a couple of weeks ago, is this idea of Canadians as who are not Indigenous, all non-Indigenous Canadians as settlers, this term, settlers, which includes Jews, it does not specifically, it's not the same as settlers, like West Bank settlers, although there's linguistic, obviously, overlap that's sort of resonant there. But I'm just interested, I don't have a take on this, okay, so this is me just being interested in something, in this idea that everybody in Canada who is not Indigenous, not only, you know, has a responsibility in terms of truth and reconciliation, but is specifically used, the same term is used, if you are a newly arrived immigrant refugee person of color, and if you're, you know, like the white Anglo type Canadian whose ancestors may have been personally settling. Explain. David, explain this to me as a new Canadian myself. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you in some sense in that, I, but I don't want to get hang up, hung up on the terms so much. I mean, I think there is very clearly something that um, is distinct in the experience of indigenous versus non-indigenous peoples, right? Mm-hmm. And so, Agreed. Um, and and that's a distinction that needs to be recognized. And uh, the horrors of the experience of the indigenous peoples uh, need to be recognized and need to be um, made better, right? Obviously. Uh, and there needs to be a concerted effort to undo that legacy. In terms of non-Indigenous people, if you want to call them settlers, to me, that's fine in a sense. Uh, it's it's a label. Uh, I, but I think it's important to distinguish between the experiences of different non-Indigenous peoples, right? So Asian immigrants, Chinese immigrants, Indian immigrants to the United States have their, or to Canada, rather, have their own experiences, uh, African Caribbean immigrants, uh, people who came, the, the 
people who were enslaved uh, who came from Africa have their own experiences. And of course, Jews have their own experiences, which are very different even from uh, the experiences of other, you know, quote unquote, white Europeans. Um, And so for me, uh, I'm fine with distinguishing between the experiences of indigenous and non-indigenous people. In fact, it's necessary. It's it's a very valid distinction. Um, so long as we also recognize that the experiences of the non-indigenous are different and need to be contextualized, which doesn't mean that in certain situations, of course, Jews and other non-indigenous peoples are implicated in and benefited from the settler colonial project, un- unquestionably. Um, but we want to understand how and why that was and how and why it was different from, say, uh, Irish Canadians or Scottish Canadians or something like that. I'm, I'm fascinated by this question or by this idea because as Jews, we, it kind of, there's a, the muddy, the waters are a bit more muddied in the sense that as Jews, we're always proud of the fact that we were here for a very, very long time, right? I was the rabbi for a little while, the Spanish and Portuguese, and we like to, you know, we are part of the early history of Canada. Um, mm-hmm. And then when, and yet when you point fingers, right, and, and somebody says settler and says, no, 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 right? I, my, my parents came in 1920s, right? We're not settlers of, uh, you know, we don't have any problem with this indigenous, you know, uh, project that's going on. And so it's almost like you can't have it both ways in that the early communal history of the Jews is, as you say, part of what happened 250, 300 years ago. Um, and yet, even though most of us um, did come in the 20th century, that doesn't, right, it sort of complicates things. It, it does complicate things. It does complicate things. But what it doesn't complicate to me is the fact that uh, when I, you know, walk around on the street in Canada or the United States, people generally think of me as someone of white European origin who is male, who receives not just the contemporary benefits or privileges, to, to use Phoebe's word. Um, of, Which I um, coined, definitely. I know, personally. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, not, not just the, the contemporary, but the legacy of those uh, of those things, right? That the long history of white supremacy in the United States and in Canada, I'm, I benefit from that. When I was born in 1982 in Montreal, uh, the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Yeah, right? I mean, I think this is all super interesting. I think I think what throws me off is because I, I do think there's a difference, obviously, between the experience of Indigenous Canadians and everybody else who in Canada who is not Indigenous. I also think there's just something something doesn't ever quite sit right with me about like if somebody's ancestors were enslaved the idea that they are a settler or if they were refugees who were treated horribly and they are also victims of racism in Canada. The idea that this term, it makes it seem like they've taken something that they that they shouldn't have taken by being present in a place that they were kind of forced. You know what I mean? So that's that's the thing that just, that's what I struggle with, I guess. But I don't know. I don't want to get hung up on a term in it because I think we basically all agree on the sort of bigger principles of this. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would just say that as... Which as is different, and this is different from the whole or Jews white thing, but related. It's yeah. related, but yeah, yeah, it is different. I mean, I think these are all, these are complicated questions. I think they're, you know, this is where the idea of intersectionality, which gets much maligned, actually becomes very interesting. Uh, you know, a, a book that I had to read in graduate school was this book called uh, Ties That Bind by Taya Miles, which was about um, a, a Cherokee man 
that owned uh, numerous enslaved uh, African-Americans, including uh, the woman who became his uh, wife and uh, had many children with her. And what happens to those descendants, right? What is their legacy uh, in this story? It's a really fascinating book. And that's the kind of thing that you can't, you can't answer that with sound bites, right? I mean, you, yeah. need, a, you need a book. And I mean, we're going to have the, you know, when we, we've been talking about Jews as non-Indigenous, but of course, there are Indigenous Jews in Canada and the United States. There we've are people, had them on the podcast. We've <laughs> had them on the podcast who are First Nations right. and Jewish, right? So, so this is where, to me, that, that story gets really interesting and complicated. Yeah, you need either a book or you need an extensive podcast interview uh, to get to the bottom of it. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Speaking of books, okay, so you talk about um, the place of Jews in North American ethnic hierarchies quite a bit. Um, so I just want you to introduce a bit um, who the main players are in an American friendship. Who were these Americans and why did it matter that they were friends? Thank you. Great. So yeah, my book is An American Friendship and the subtitle is Horace Callan, Alain Locke and the Development of Cultural Pluralism. Uh, so, uh, it's an intellectual, uh, history. Um, I like to call it like, um, a buddy comedy, but more pretentious. Um, the two main players are Horace Callan, uh, who was Jewish. Uh, he was born in 1882, uh, in what was then Germany is now Poland, uh, to, uh, an Orthodox rabbi, but immigrated to Boston at age five. And so, uh, grew up in, in Boston in the United States, um, and, uh, became, a, a sort of semi-prominent philosopher. And, uh, the other main protagonist is Elaine Locke, who's, uh, African-American born in 1885 in Philadelphia, um, and also becomes, a uh, semi-prominent uh, philosopher and also the leader of uh, the black aesthetic movement known as the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, or one of the leaders of that movement. And uh, these two men became friends uh, when they were at Harvard together uh, in uh, 1905, 1906, 1907, and then uh, remained friends uh, with varying degrees of closeness for much of their lives. And together came up with this term, cultural pluralism. Mm -hmm. And cultural pluralism is sort of the ancestor to what we might call, or precursor to what we might call multicultural. So that was actually going to be my next question, which is what the difference is between, on the one hand, cultural pluralism and multiculturalism, um, but also cultural pluralism and the melting pot idea. Mm -hmm. So yeah, cultural pluralism um, is this idea that's not very complicated. 
Um, but it's basi- basically posited in contrast to the idea you just mentioned, which is uh, the melting pot. There was this idea that America should be a melting pot, that immigrants would come in and basically completely assimilate and lose all of their cultures. That's the sort of crude melting pot idea, or vulgar melting pot idea, maybe. Um it was actually a really progressive idea at the time, in the beginning 20th century, because many people were just plain nativists who said, don't come in, we don't want you. So the melting pot was a progressive alternative to that. But uh, Horace Cowan and L.A. Locke argued for something called cultural pluralism, which essentially said uh, people of different cultures, they might have used the term races, but uh, they really sort of meant ethnicities, um, people of different cultures... Uh, should maintain their cultures and develop their cultures. These cultures will um, add to the fabric of American life. They will add to uh, each other and uh, just have a net positive effect. Uh, Now, the difference uh, between cultural pluralism and multiculturalism is debated somewhat. I'll tell you what I think the difference is. Um, I think cultural pluralism, as it developed at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, was very elitist. These were very elite people who thought about building elite cultures, and it was also very secular. Uh, they, When they talked about Jews, they compared Jews to the Irish, the Italians, the Poles. They didn't tell, compare them to Catholics or Protestants or Muslims. And I think, I'll, I'll, I'll just say, I think multiculturalism it, today is less elitist and less secular. So I was going to say it, two points to that. One is that it's, to me, I get the sense that there was, at the time, culture meant something as opposed to non-culture, right? There was something, culture was high culture, and there were cultured individuals and non-cultured individuals. So to say cultural pluralism meant something different than here nowadays in 2023, where culture just means where you come from and everybody has some culture. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you're, the, the Frasier, to, to do the sitcom version, Frasier and Niles appreciated culture. Culture, exactly. Martin, <laughs> Martin, Martin was more like, some historians would study him now, but yeah. 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 And, and so that's first point. And then the second point to, to, to the second one that you said is that primarily Jews were from Eastern Europe, from certain places in Eastern Europe. And to say the Jews versus the Irish and, uh, you know, the, or the Italians, um, made sense then and makes a lot less sense now. So yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, I mean, even then, of course, there was diversity about where in Europe a Jew might be from, certainly, but uh, but yes, it makes it makes even less sense now. Um, I think what you're talking about in terms of high culture versus low culture or lowbrow culture uh, is also yeah broadly accurate that uh, so for example, in Horace Callan's case, uh, he was one of the founders of something called the Harvard Menorah Society, which later becomes the Intercollegiate Menorah Society, which is this kind of let's make Judaism into this highbrow Americanized culture, right? And uh, that's uh, eventually they lose similar to the thing. Harlem Renaissance, right? Yes, to say that we exactly have a high right. culture, we're not just you know culture from whatever it was that. That's exactly right. That Alain Locke said, he said, culture belongs to those who use it. That was one of the things that he said. And so, uh, you know, he said, we as African-Americans have this great African and African-American heritage with which we can use modern cultural tools, poetry, music, literature, etc., to shape, right? And so people involved in that movement, uh, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, etc., were using the tools of 
quote unquote Western civilization to mold a high or elite African American culture. I thought what was so interesting is how you specifically talk about friendship. I mean, it's there um, in the、mm -hmm. title, but also it's very much present in the book in terms of just friendship as versus other forms of. Human interaction, right? So it's different from. So I actually, I, in grad school, I studied、um, like intermarriage and the idea of Jewish Christian intermarriage and how and the sort of more and less progressive ways in which that was either like Napoleon tried to enforce it and so forth. You know, so it's it's interesting this idea that like what I found was that there was anti-Semitism on kind of both sides of it of the like Jews have to marry out to disappear versus Jews can't marry out because that will pollute the. You know, so you get both. You get kind of haters、mm -hmm. on both sides. But, but I thought it was interesting. So to talk about friendship as versus intermarriage, but also as versus like sort of professional allegiances. You know, working towards a common cause in some kind of like impersonal way. And I thought that was interesting because it really is like that. That is then the metaphor, right, for cultural pluralism. That this idea of friendship. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, that's one of the the sort of key things I wanted to advance in this book is that、uh, you know you've al we've already discussed the melting pot. That was a big metaphor. So food metaphors are big, right? And today in the United States, you're supposed to talk about the salad bowl instead of the melting pot. And the other big metaphor has often been music, right? That Horace Callan himself used, and Ally Locke to a lesser extent about you know the harmony of different instruments. But 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 I think that met、uh, friendship is is even better because. Uh, at the end of the day, you know what Callan and Locke were saying is that you wanted to have friends who were not exactly like you, who you could learn from. And the point is, you and and thus difference is paramount, right? They ask the question, what difference does the difference make? You want to not ignore those differences. You want to focus on those differences and explain them and compare and contrast them. And and so. Uh, to me, for both for both men, right, their experiences, particularly in higher education, led them to these sorts of friendships, not just with each other,、uh, with with several others in their lives, but it's with each others that they were really sort of to、um, find common ground by respecting and analyzing and becoming aware of each other's differences, right,、mm -hmm. and and the difficulty perhaps of integrating into. Into、uh, an American society that is, of course, deeply racist and, to a lesser extent, but still very much anti-Semitic.、Mm -hmm. Hearing this, I, I keep think, imagining right that these two people are basically they are others within a society, right? And they're not looking to sit at the you know the big kids' table. They are saying we are not at that table. We are doing our own thing. Let us do our own thing together, and let us deal with this cultural pluralism.、Um, In the late twentieth, early twenty first century, where there's a lot more integration of, with, for example, the Jewish community in Canada,、um, what happens to culture then? What happens to both, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or high culture or even low culture? Like, do you find that the the attempts and the needs to differentiate to say that this is distinctly Jewish or distinctly African American tends to go away、um, when there's a lot more integration into a, a greater society? Yes. Uh, I would say broadly.、Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, and that's you know that was one of the differences that Horace Callan and Locke even experienced. I mean, Horace Callan, it was much easier for him to integrate. So、mm -hmm. um, he, for him, it was about asserting a very、uh, particular Jewish. Cultural identity and community and 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 cultural representation through art and and intellectual products, right? Because he didn't want assimilation. Ally Locke, 
assimilation was not really possible for him, right? So for him, it was quite literally about a seat at the table, right? I talk about this, that when they both go to Oxford together, L.A. Locke is the first black Rhodes Scholar, and, and Horace Callan is there on a fellowship in 1907, and Horace Callan is invited to the American Club Thanksgiving dinner, and L.A. Locke is not, right? L.A. Locke literally wanted a seat at that table. Um, that he was not allowed. Uh, Horace Callan wanted to not be forgotten as the Jewish guy at the table, but he had mm-hmm. a seat. I mean, it's, it's all fascinating. I mean, especially, so another thought I, I had just like throughout was like, they're both men though, right? They were both men and that that gave them a certain edge, you know, to re- return to the, the famous privilege topic. But yeah, I mean, I found, I just want to like emphasize that they're both very colorful characters like they're they're you know entertaining people and so a, a detail that i really appreciated was that alain not originally alain so like mm-hmm. when you think of jewish name change you think of you know anglicization trying to sound less jewish maybe trying to fit in in hollywood something like that or mm-hmm. but here's somebody who who went with who stepped away from the anglicization approach um do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, I say these these two guys, you know, like I said, a buddy comedy, but more pretentious. Uh, Alain Locke, is, he was born Alan Locke. He adds the I to his name to sound French and more pretentious. He was not French. Like uh, Timothée Chalamet? I, I, I suppose so. <laughs> I, I, I can't speak to that. But, but yeah, um, you know, and similarly, I talk Horace Callan, he goes to Oxford for a year. And he picks up an affected British accent that he keeps his entire life. People think he's <laughs> British when he's teaching at the University of Wisconsin a few years later. Okay, so, so I went to college is, with a guy who had gone to another. No, but Berlin? seriously, but I went to college with a guy who had just gone to a different high school in New York than I had, and he spoke with a British accent, and it was completely this. It was completely this. Uh, I, I love details like this. Um, but yeah, so I mean, on a less upbeat note i mean you, you do write about the bigotry that mm-hmm. both Locke and callan expressed um in their writing um towards other groups towards each other's groups towards additional groups and a lot of it is you know kind of hard to read um obviously you know if you've studied a lot of history it, you're familiar with such things but it's still you know a lot of it's pretty hateful a lot of it seems very strategic it seems like they're talking to somebody they know to be hateful and they're trying to um, sorry, curry favor. And that's why they say the things they say, but it's still, they're still saying them. Um, but then there is this sort of positive um, arc, right? Where they, they, it, the friendship does allow for, um, it, it doesn't turn them into, you know, the world's most enlightened people, maybe by 2023 standards, but something happens, some progress. Mm-hmm. So it does sort of show progress, right? Yes, it does. And I think, um, yeah, that was one of the more, I agree it's difficult, but really one of the more fascinating parts of following them on this journey and doing this research. And, and, the, and you know, those were the archival finds where you're sort of looking at them and you're like, wow, this is the way they're talking about, you know, Horace Callan, you know, is is racist towards African-Americans, use, uses racist language. Ellen Locke is anti-Semitic, uses anti-Semitic language. And yet they remain friends, right? So I try to, how do I make sense of this, right? Uh, one thing I say to myself is that at the very least, what they're doing, even in being bigoted, is they're acknowledging difference, right? They're saying, this person is from a different background than me. But right? what this about when, when Locke is, I mean, he he uses bigoted language about his own group and you could say okay well it's the 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 meaning is different if it's from about your own group however he seems to 
there's something going on there. Yes, you're, you, I mean, Alan and in, and it seems like with both of them to some extent towards their own group. Yeah, they had they they were they were outsiders, mm-hmm. um, not just to the broader American elite society, but also in certain ways to their own groups. I mean, Horace Callan, uh, you know, rebelled against the orthodox of his father and did not have nice words to say about the orthodox, but he perhaps had even harsher words to say about the reformed Jews, who he thought diluted Judaism of any sort of any of its differences, right? Um, And so, and L.A. Locke, you know, he saw himself as part of an elite and he had high standards for himself and for the people he hung out with. And when people didn't meet those standards, he had harsh words, you know, for them, including, you know, the racial language uh, of the time that, mm-hmm. that, that we all abhor. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're human beings right. um, and they do, they do change over time. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought think that comes it, through. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it, 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 it took, and it, it's not just their friendship, right? It's, it's world events, right? It's the Holocaust. It's the beginnings of the civil rights movement and things like that, that, that enable them to change. Yeah, I mean, they're born into a society that is deeply bigoted, right? Where bigotry, where xenophobia, just hatred of an other or disregard for another is so baked into society. And it takes, you know, forever to change that. And, you know, the lesson for me in that, um, and we we don't have to talk about this, is is that anybody who complains about anti-Semitism in 2023 has to only look at, you know, the hatred that existed 100 years ago to say, not that there is no hatred, but to say, look how far we have come. And there's still work to be done, but... You, know, you mean that need... this isn't the worst it's ever been, Avi? Are you sure? But... <laughs> Have you not read the tweets? Have you not <laughs> seen the billboards? Daily, daily. This is my struggle. Um, I, but but yeah, and you know, it's even when I go and say, and I talk to people about this, you know, that it's so hard to hate somebody that you that you get to know and like. And the easiest way to for an Orthodox Jew who has bigoted views about African Americans um, to move on from that is to become friends with somebody who is African American or somebody who's Native, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's easier in a society where that is a value that is there, um, where so much bigotry exists as just part of, like I said, the baked in society. It's hard to move away from that. And it takes them decades to get away from it, even though they are friends. So there's a quote, though, that I want to ask about, because this I found a little tricky. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, anti-Semitism was commonplace among elite white Christians in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was also common among educated African-Americans who learned it from white people. You write. So I mm-hmm. wanted to ask about specifically the who learned it from white people part, because it seems mm. like why did you go with that? Like what what made you think this rather than that everybody kind of hated everybody and that there was obviously power structure. So it was different if you were marginalized, hating, you know, but and, and so forth. But like, yeah, I wanted to ask about the specific aspect of learned it from white people. Well, I think I would I would answer that in a few ways. I mean, one, I would say that um, part of anti-Semitism was an older anti-Jewish sentiment that existed within Christianity religiously, right? And that was something that, by and large, for the African-American community at least, was um, brought from the white community to the African-American community, right? In terms of the Christian religion and uh, whatever anti-Jewish sentiment is uh, is baked in there. Um, I also think that um, 
the kind of anti-Semitism that I was talking about specifically in terms of Ally Locke and in terms of, uh, of that kind of elite anti-Semitism is, uh, I think, an anti-Semitism that kind of permeated the culture that might come from reading Shakespeare, which we know Ally Locke did, right? Mm-hmm. And, and other elites did, right? Uh, so uh, I think that's that was um, my... My main, uh, you know, that's why I phrased it that way, because I didn't see it as something that, at least at that stage, um, was really born out of uh, African-American experiences in with Jewish people. Those mm-hmm. were still, um, for the most part, pretty, uh, pretty new in the late 19th, early 20th mm-hmm. century, right? When you have a large uh, Jewish immigrant population coming in. Prior to that... There were, obviously, in the American South, uh, Jewish encounters with African Americans. We know there Jews. Uh, there were Jews that owned enslaved people, both Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. Um, you know, but those, I don't know that those were the interactions, and the, that was the kind of anti-Semitism that was being referred to here. I think it was something that was being learned um, through religion or maybe through a kind of elite culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is there still cultural pluralism today in that sense? Does that still exist? Or has it just kind of become multiculturalism? Um, I think it still exists. Um, I think it's now a subcategory of multiculturalism, right? I think multiculturalism now has come to include um, different things, like religion, for example, that cultural pluralism did not include, and includes food that everyone is interested in and clothing and uh sorts of things like that right and and other other um sort of more popular forms uh but i do think there are still people who are invested in um creating uh mm-hmm. artistic expressions that represent their experiences as being part of communities or mm-hmm. thinking about intellectually or th- through through writing through scholarship right their experiences as part of one or more communities mm-hmm. their experiences of interactions between different communities so it still it still exists mm-hmm. and i think it's still very important um but i think ultimately its evolution to something that is more inclusive um less elitist and more inclusive of things like religion is probably uh, a good thing can i ask a gossipy question about these men because <laughs> I could not figure out how the Horace Callan of the first part of the book suddenly has a wife and a family because that did, I, I mean. It's a question. It's a question. I mean, I don't know. In the book, I, I speculate. So Alan Locke was, was well known to be openly gay. I mean, as openly gay as one could be uh, at that time. And um, Horace Callan gets married when he's uh, 44 years old. Uh I don't know. I speculate that it's a possibility because of based on some of the sources that I've read, but I absolutely cannot say that there was any relationship between those two at all. Um, I know something that I didn't really include in my, if I, if I in the book, uh, you know, there was when Horace Callan was professor at the, the new school for social research, he was a founding faculty member there in 1919. And in the early twenties, um, he had this kind of, epistolary relationship with a woman who was very much in love with him and he didn't seem to be all that interested in, but it's not clear to me that anything ever happened between them. 
Um, what's interesting also about Horace Callan, of course, is that um, while you know, sort of being opposed to intermarriage earlier in his career, he marries a non-Jewish woman. Um, and later on, sort of in reference to something you said earlier, Phoebe, he does talk about intermarriage kind of in the same way as he talks about friendship, in that it could be a net positive as long as people learn from each other's cultures and neither culture is erased and blow, you know. Mm -hmm. So he does, you know, I'm talking about in the 1960s because he lives forever, Um, Mm -hmm. but uh, dies in West Palm Beach, Florida, actually. Hmm. Um, Very, very Jewish life from there. Where all Jews go to West Palm Beach, yeah. (laughs) If I can broaden this up and bring it again back to to where we are today, um, Multi the, the the sense that I get is that one of the upshots of multiculturalism then is that not only do cultures get to celebrate their own culture and develop their own cultures, both high and low and food and religion and 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 celebrate that, but we get to dip our toes into each other's and that that's like a huge essential element of uh, Canadian society, for example, where, uh, you know, so many non-Jews will partake of, you know, Schwartz's in Montreal or bagels in Toronto, however sacrilegious that might be. Um, and, 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 and that as Jews, we are looking at all the other <laughs> cuisines and stuff like that. Um, I get the sense that it is both a, both, you know, good and not as good, meaning there, there are, there are net negatives uh, p- potentially or net positive. I, I'm not sure where, where, what goes on with multiculturalism when it becomes more, yes, this is your culture, but I get to dabble in six different other cultures. I, I'm guessing, I'm not entirely sure because I didn't read the book yet, yet, because it sounds fascinating, but I'm guessing that Alan did not go to Shoal, right, to visit, to, to, to experience his friend's um, religion and culture, um, and vice versa is probably not the same. That is the case, right? Well, so to, uh, well, a few things. First of all, Horace Callan <laughs> sure. didn't go to Shul very much. Let me tell you. Um, so, so, and and I'll, and I'll just say, Ally Locke is is really fascinating. Uh, in 1918, he converts to the Baha'i faith, and so he becomes Baha'i for the remainder of his life, um, which is a very different kind of religion, and and, and he's very private about it, um, but. He, uh, so, but, and Horace Callan actually does visit the Baha'i Temple when he goes, or the, the, the Baha'i Gardens when he goes to, uh, Israel. But, um, I, I think that for each of them, it was secular culture. I mean, both of them understood Jude- Jewish culture as something secular. Horace Callan has this very clear, um, sort of historical progression that he talks about where, um, he talks about Judaism, Hebraism, Zionism. So Judaism is the original religion. Hebraism is the secular culture, uh, that develops that's better than Judaism. And Zionism is the political manifestation of Hebraism, right? He's a leading Zionist friends with Brandeis, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. So, um, I, 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 but, but, you know, sort of, that, that's just on them. But to go, to go to your question, I mean, um, I think that it's great to be able to dabble. And the question is, does dabbling lead to some kind of assimilation or erasure or dilution? Right. And, and I think the answer is not necessarily. Um, and, and 
it also leads to sort of interesting questions. I'll give you an example from my own. It leads teaching. to Yahoo. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. It leads, <laughs> first of all, yes, it leads it le- it leads to great uh, cultural collaboration. You're a hundred percent right, right? You're, you you don't you can't have a Matisiahu without some kind of cultural pluralism uh, or multiculturalism, whichever one you want to call it. Um, I would say cultural pluralism in that case. Um, but um, you know, for my own life, I mean, I, I, I tell this to my students, you know, uh, something you may not know about me is I am a huge fan of, uh, Irish music, Celtic music. I love it. I love going. I think I'm the only Boron playing rabbi in the world. Oh, wow. I I need to be proven otherwise. You're better than I am. But I mean, (laughs) I I got into it because my mom was obsessed with Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance for a while. Mm -hmm. So we were really into that. And I love it. And I go to, you know, Irish pubs to listen to music. I don't drink, which is very odd. But I do go to these, right? And so I love it. I listen to the music all the time. And I say to my students, and I'm 0% Irish. I mean, Mm -hmm. 0%. Right. I haven't done 23 and me, but I know uh, that, that I'm zero percent Irish. So what does that mean? Like if I if I started learning Gaelic, like would I become Irish or is it just a dabble? Like, is it just an extensive sort of dabbling? I don't know. Right. But the fact that I'm able that there are Irish pubs for me to go to and also my shul that I can go to, I think is pretty wonderful. So so actually, I think that that's really, really profound what you're saying there, because it has huge implications for current society. For uh, And I think that this is one of the cruxes of the difficulties around the anti-Semitism or the fight against anti-Semitism uh, dialogue in, in society today is that you can't become Irish, right? So if there were to be anti-Irish sentiment around for something— mm-hmm. um, you know, they would say, you know, this is our culture, this is who we are, and we're fighting against X, right? You can mm-hmm. become Jewish, right? You can become Israeli, you can convert. And so to say that you anti-Semitism, right, is about Jews or Jewish culture, Jewish society, is saying so much more than just Eastern European or Sephardic history and that this or that the Christians, you know, don't like the Jews and that there's a lot of confusion around there and that rightfully speaking, we should be fighting anti-Semitism. But to the people fighting, you know, anti-Semitism, right, um, there's no um, discussion your about what topic, it's, Your favorite topic has, I, no, has resurfaced. It has come up, but, but I wasn't the one that brought it up. It came up with... The, with <laughs> because you can't... You, what does it mean to, to be anti-Semitic? What are you fighting mm. if you are an anti-Semite today is confusing to people, and it's confusing to the people that are the targets of it. Yeah. Because I, of multiculturalism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not no, because, was, but in part. Well, listen, part of this goes to, you know, as I said, for Horace Callan and many other Jews and for non-Jews like L.A. Locke, for a long time, you could speak of Jews as a cultural group or ethnic Mm -hmm. group. Right. And, you know, with all the Ashkenormativity that goes into that and everything else, right, that this was this is a group that had a distinct ethnic culture and it didn't have to be religious. In fact, many of us want to divorce it from religion, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That obviously is becoming more and more difficult because, um, you know, not just because of sort of a reframing with both Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Mizrahi, et cetera. Or right? This is, converts, this is yeah. what, this is what I said. Jews, like, yeah. I, I, I mean, I haven't seen the numbers on this, but I'm fairly certain that more people are converting to Judaism today than any time in Jewish history, certainly in, you know, as far back as we can think, right? Because yeah. 
to Judaism because there's there's basically no major penalty. There is anti-Semitism, but there's no legal penalty. And and you have a lot of interest. You have people but, converting because of marriage, but you have people converting because they're just converting. I guess I wonder how much anti-Semitism does impact converts to Judaism and whether to some extent, while they deal with all other for, all sorts of other forms of grief, whether Listen, they're not that's just doing one, it for the jokes. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> I'm thinking of, and this is my bias from, because this is when I was at the forward and this was a, the big topic of the time, but uh, Ivanka Trump. Mm-hmm. Much was made of Ivanka Trump's Jewish. We had to every day say whatever had happened with Ivanka Trump that day, um, whether or not we cared. But the point is, was Ivanka Trump ever meaningfully a victim of anti-Semitism? I have trouble really seeing that. I think it was kind of understood that she was Donald Trump's daughter and Ivana Trump's daughter. And I don't really, I think anti-Semitism still has such a large racial component that, um, you know, however Jews are self-defining, which isn't, you know, obviously ideally, you know, racially or certainly not Mm. in that way, anti-Semites have not such qualms, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, look, I can't speak for all anti-Semites, Phoebe. I was expecting you can only speak for yourself. <laughs> I can only speak for myself, exactly. Um, but I do think probably there are some who are of more, uh, you know, are have kind of an anti-Judaism orientation mm-hmm. who might ha- have been upset by by Ivanka's conversion. Sure, but but I also think that if you choose to be Jewish. You choose to be Jewish usually publicly, which means you're in Jewish spaces, mm-hmm. which can be targeted for things, right? So, like, yes, you're 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 right that you know on the street, and you know maybe Ivanka isn't targeted for anything, but um, you know it's not. I don't think having you know someone having being a Jew by choice means they're immune um, to to the effects sure. of anti-Semitism. Sure. I think you're right. It's certainly about about spaces and so forth. But can we talk a little bit about Canadian versus American Jews? Because the secular Jewish question comes up, the secular Jewish question as versus mm-hmm. the regular Jewish question comes up a lot on this podcast. Um, and I really identified a lot with the um, Horace Callan approach to Jewishness, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the closest to what I am. Um, and that makes me a bit the oddball um maybe in Canada, maybe just at the CJN. I don't know. Um, so are, is, is secular Jewish Jewishness much of a thing in Canada? Is it more of a thing in Montreal than Toronto? Um, explain. My, my sort of brief take would simply be that um, because of what, what some people call like the generational gap between Canadian and American Jewry, that, that sort of ethnic Ju- Judaism is a bit stronger in Canada, Mm-hmm. Right, that because Canadian Jews came more recently, the reform movement is much weaker in uh, Canada than it is in the United States, mm-hmm. and um, maybe also because of the multicultural framework of Canada versus the more assimilationist framework of the United States. For all of those reasons, that it it is maybe in some ways easier to 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 define oneself as a secular Jew in the Canadian context. I mean, certainly, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have defined myself as a secular Jew growing up, but I lived in a Jewish bubble that was not Orthodox, right? I went to Jewish day school and uh, it was, you know, my whole life was Jewish, 
uh, growing up in Canada. And so I, I don't know. I feel like outside of the Orthodox community, even in a place like New York, where, you know, I lived for eight years and love deeply, I think it's, it, it's in, might be in some ways more difficult uh, outside of the Orthodox community to just sort of live a reflexively Jewish existence like that in a secular kind of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I don't know if you agree, Avi. Or... Um, look, I, I always say, you know, I've, I've said this many times, uh, the, to explain Canadian Jewry to Americans, I say the, the, um, the shul that everybody drives to on Shabbos better be Orthodox. Yeah. Right. And that that's, you know, it is generational. I think that it's more. I'm so secular that it took me a minute the first time you told me that to get (laughs) But yes, I I, Um, I do. But the the I always uh, attributed more to the fact that Canada had deeper ties and still has deeper ties to Europe, where such Judaism still is, you know, de rigueur. Um, And and secularism isn't as pervasive there. And I think that that's more what it's related to than the generational. Um, I think that it is very easy. It always was very easy to have both. And I think that the relative tolerance of uh, Canadian relative to American society, for example, um, had greater tolerance for the Jewish community um, at a time when, you know, people were, um, there was still anti-Semitism around, meant that Canadian Jews had an easier time being Jewish um, in Canada than in America, which meant that you can still do your traditions and still go to shul and still do stuff. When, when are you saying this would have been? Uh, 100 to 50 years ago. Okay, because, I mean, my grandmother in Montreal, um, born in 1920, that had not been her experience. It seemed like she experienced much more anti-Semitism and sort of hostility. Than, than she would have in America, you're saying? Yeah, just compared with my American okay. relatives. But it, it's all, that's N of one, right? So I think we need to ask that, the other Weinfeld. On the, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I don't know. know. Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's hard to... It's hard to say also because, you know, I, I, I listen to your show and I'm thinking back to a conversation you had about secular Judaism with, was it Mark Oppenheimer? We, I did, want to say. we did talk with him, yes. Yeah, and, and, and just how, um, you know, I was kind of um, sympathetic to your position, Phoebe, in, in that discussion, even as I also felt like Mark Oppenheimer was sort of right in the sense that, like, there's something wonderful about secular Judaism, and that's what I—that's how I defined myself for a long time, and that's why I grew, grew up with. But it's very fleeting, right? It's very hard for secular Judaism to remain one thing. Mm-hmm. So I think in Canada, it's maybe remained one thing a little bit longer than the United States, but it's still in that process of changing into something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it, and I'm, I'm not sure. I still have to think more about it. I think that there's also, you know, uh, there are more touchstones to Jewish stuff in Canadian Jewish culture, right? I, uh, I, I you talk about Yidlife Crisis in the in the book in the postscript to the uh, No Better No home. Better Home. Sorry, wonderful book by a former guest, also here, David Kaufman. <laughs> Fabulous book, exactly. Um, and and you know, you think about Yidlife Crisis, who are fairly secular individuals. I know them; they're friends of mine. They would never deny that, but all of their videos tend to revolve around something deeply Jewish, a sukkah, a Yom Kippur, um, Rosh Hashanah, a bris, a, a something like that. And you have a lot of American culture where, American Jewish culture, where it is just about the food or the music or the, you know, tradition and, uh, you know, and 
that's that. If, if, if Fiddler on the Roof had been written in Canada, there would be more Jewish touchstones in there as opposed to let's try to flatten it as much as possible. That, you know, that's where some of my thinking is going. But yes, I, uh, you know, I think that we are in an interesting state of flux in Canadian Jew- Jewry in terms of the secular versus religious divide. Yeah, we're, we're at an inflection point and I don't know where it's going to go. Well, um, you'll find yeah. out here on Both Are High. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> What's your nachas this week? Oh, uh, my nachas this week is uh, for the comedian Robbie Hoffman, who you may be aware of. Uh, She's originally from Brooklyn, but then uh, moved to uh, Montreal as a child and and spent a lot of time there. Uh, Montreal Day School alum. And uh, her career has just been going uh, really, really well. Uh, And I know she's very happy in her personal life now, um, dating a star from The Bachelorette, Gabby. So um, we're really happy for them and and, and great nachas for, uh, for them. Awesome. Yes. Phoebe, what's your nachas? My nachas, if this even qualifies, is for daycare. I'm very grateful for daycare because my husband's giving a talk, um, although he's, he may be back now, actually, in um, at MIT. So uh, near the, the scene of all of the ac- a lot of the action um, in this book. And it has been helpful to have some child care uh, during that time. So my nachas is to daycare. Avi, what's yours? Uh, I would like to offer a tribute this week to Alice Shalvi. If you don't know who Alice Shalvi is, uh, she was born in pre-war Germany. Alice rose to become one of the most prominent feminists in Israel. She founded the Israel Women's Network. She was a professor of English literature at Bar-Ilan, a department that she founded as well. Um, I'm most interested in the Pelech School, of which she was also one of the creators. It was the first girls' school to teach Talmud to girls in Israel, and it still stands as a paragon of girls' education in Israel today. Alice Shalvi died last week, just shy of her 97th birthday. And so I'm taking this time. I want to celebrate her accomplishments. And she is my nachas this week. Great episode. Thank you all. Thanks, David. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 7th, Shemini Yatzeret and Simcha Torah. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is always one of the best ways we get new listeners, and as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. 